0: Hello, Skate Punks. Sam Jones is a renowned photographer and filmmaker. His most recent example of the latter is the excellent new Tony Hawk documentary on HBO titled Tony Hawk, Until the Wheels Fall Off. Sam, thank you so much for the time. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing good. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, we, you and I are speaking on the Tuesday that this film actually comes out on HBO and HBO Max soon after. Uh, just how exciting is it to finally get to this point in this process?
1: Oh, I can't believe it's... Uh it's over, (laughs) you know, the process of making the film and uh, selling the film and promoting the film. Um, It's been a long journey from when I first asked Tony, it's been years and, and yeah, it's, it's kind of wild to be, to be here. And, and it feels, you know, to me it feels done, but I have to remind myself that except for a few people that at the premieres that we've
0: had, no one has seen it yet. So uh, I'll be really curious to see how that goes. Well, I'm fortunate to have uh, gotten to see an early screening as well. And you and I spoke on the red carpet a couple weeks ago here at South by Southwest. And we talked about the genesis of this film being in part you having Tony on your direct TV interview show. I'm curious, though, what was the first step in terms of actually shooting? Did it start with an interview with Tony himself before you kind of fanned out and spoke to other people from his past?
1: You know, that that's an interesting question, because no, it didn't. Uh, it started with a visit to his mom. Uh, to her retirement home uh, or her convalescent home uh, because she wasn't doing great. And I knew that Tony, um, you know, had put, had with along with his siblings, had found a spot that could give her care because she had advanced Alzheimer's and dementia. And so uh, he would go and visit her, and I just asked if I could come along. Uh, and, you know, I used to see her at contests in the 80s I used to see both of his parents, they were at every contest. And so I just wanted to go and see, you know, uh, that relationship and uh, it proved to be sadly fortuitous because I think she passed away about three weeks after we had filmed that. And, and at that time we hadn't had any, we hadn't, Gotten any official funding or or word about distributor or anything like that? So it was just sort of belief, of, sort of a leap of faith to to go meet her and and film that interaction. So that's how we started. And from the beginning, I wanted the film to not be categorized as a typical skate film or a genre film. And so um, that's why that scene shows up at the beginning of the movie because um, it, the film is so much about family. And, and I was glad I got to meet her before she passed away.
0: I spoke with both you and Tony a little bit about vulnerability a couple weeks back. And uh, that is, uh, in a lot of ways, a major part of what you were able to show the people over the course of two hours. And a lot of it has to do with going behind the scenes with Tony's personal life. Was there much push-pull that happened with regards to you making sure that uh, people could see a side of him that maybe they were completely unfamiliar with just following his life as a skateboarder?
1: Yeah, you know it's a tricky thing when you're making a documentary about um a living breathing person you know this isn't someone long ago in history that we get to examine his life with the benefit of hindsight he's still an evolving human being who uh you know i needed i needed to get to know him and gain his trust and decide along with him uh how personal he was going to be and I asked for his trust and I asked for his candor and um and, and you know one of my one of sort of the fortuitous things that came out of covid is that tony wasn't doing a lot of things as none of us were in the uh in the summer of 2020 so um he had a lot of time to give me and over that time and over several hours of interviews on multiple days over over a year and a half two years time uh, you know, we, I got to know him on a level where I think he, he was, he was either, uh, you know, uh either he got used to me or, or he sort of forgot that we were filming or whatever, but I, I think, I think he realized that, okay, I'm just going to have to trust this guy and open up and, and uh you know, that, and that's, that's the challenge with a, a subject that, you know, you, that, you're sort of you're not a partner with because he wasn't you know he wasn't a partner he didn't have any say over the film he didn't have final cut none of that stuff but you know uh, he is he is choosing to share his life and that's a delicate balance
0: Well, this is much more than just a skate film. The skateboarding aspect of things is really cool as well. I mean, you go back and look at the history of uh, just how skateboarding blew up in popularity through the 1980s and 90s. How much of that was you going off of just somebody who skated yourself in the 80s and also followed these guys? I think you admitted on the red carpet that you uh, quasi used to stalk Tony Hawk. I mean, he was he was a legend even back then. But how much of that was was based on your memory versus talking to some of these legends from the past and uh, really boning up on your own historical understanding of uh, what was happening in skateboarding at that time?
1: Well, you know, some people talk about the unfair advantage, and I think my unfair advantage was that I was there, and one of my best friends was Neil Blender. And um, my current friends that I spend time with and ride motorcycles with are Mike McGill and Steve Caballero hmm. and also Tony's son. Uh, and so I've known all of these people for a long time. And I was at these contests and I skated. That was a sponsored amateur. So I skated in castle, which was the California amateur skateboard league, uh, which Tony's dad also organized uh, a lot of people don't know that he organized that before he organized the NSA. So uh, not only do I know all the players, It was such a small scene back then that if you drove down you know because my house was about an hour and a half north of the del mar skate park uh but by by the time 1983 rolled around it was one of only two skate parks left there was upland and there was del mar so uh, we were constantly making the trip either by car or by train down to del mar to skate the park and if you went to del mar at any time in the mid 80s tony would be there so you know stalking is a word that i think it was invented much later than or, or come into vernacular much later than than when all this happened but um but it was such a small scene that we were just around him and when it came time to go look at footage and to find the you know find the sources of of this stuff uh, i knew it all existed and i knew who might have it in their vaults and who might have saved vhs tapes and things like that so that was definitely my unfair advantage uh in this film
0: was there any one person who provided you with more archival footage than the others from that time
1: well stacy peralta was really generous okay. and george powell as well um, they gave us probably between 18 and 20 minutes of bones brigade footage because uh, Stacy, as you see from the film, started the whole video revolution of of filming these guys, so that people in the middle of the country who never came out to these contests or skate parks could see the scene as it was evolving. Um, and it was a hugely successful promotional tool for Pal Perelta as a company, and the other skate companies did it as well once Stacy showed them the way. But uh, but I think at the time, no one knew that that was going to end up being the the main currency about in in the way with skateboarders shared their their tricks and um and so uh that was amazing to be able to comb through all of that footage and and a lot of stuff that had never been seen you know we found this interview that was 16 minutes long with tony's dad and i I think maybe 30 seconds of it made it into a video Mm -hmm. back in the 90s so um yeah. So they, they were really helpful. And then also, you know, some of the skaters like John Lucero, uh, who was around in the Whittier days, he knew the, the source material and, and things that were out there. And Don Hoffman, whose parents built Upland, uh, Don filmed all those contests and announced them. and So uh, it was great to go hunting for all of that stuff.
0: I think it was Rodney Mullins who said the most interesting thing about Tony is watching him figure something out. You did a great job of depicting this uh, when he ultimately lands that 900 at the x games, but did you witness this up close and personal while filming him?
1: Uh, so what do you mean? In terms of him learning?
0: Yeah, him just grinding and trying figuring figure out yes. how, how to do something.
1: You know, funny enough, there was a trick that he was chasing for – uh several days maybe even weeks uh, while we were down there a lot and it was like this it was this board it was like a kind of a pressure flip to to a disaster slide and he it was such a weird hard trick to pull off not a dangerous trick but a very like little technical flippy trick and uh and i saw him wear himself out on that you know Multiple days trying to trying to land it for no reason other than the fact that he thought of it and he wanted to own that trick and no one had ever done it and and watching him do it and talk about it was so insightful in into uh, his process and we definitely use that information for for the film as well.
0: I don't recall you speaking with Tony in modern times about his mindset when he actually was able to land that nine hundred at the X Games was this done deliberately considering how many other people you had commenting in that moment? And if so, why?
1: You know, there were a few times where we found that letting the people who had grown up with him and really spent time with him give their observations in a way. I felt that was a more interesting approach than having Tony tell it. um, Because we get to watch Tony doing it. And I think, in a lot of ways, Tony is, uh, he's almost uh, watching him skate tells you more than he could uh, articulate. Uh, so, so when you talk, when you hear Rodney talking about watching him fail and learn tricks, uh, Rodney put that in a more eloquent way than anybody could. And, and during the X games, what I thought was interesting is that Tony, Tony didn't really talk to anybody during that entire arc of those 12 attempts, but what, what that story told is that everybody from his life was tuned into that. You know, Stacy Peralta wasn't there, but he was tuned into television. And Lance Mountain was tuned in. And Rodney was tuned in. And they all knew that this special thing was happening. And to to see them try to explain it um, gives you more insight into Tony, I think, than than for his retelling of it. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, and I vaguely remember that moment happening. I was watching the X Games at that time, but I think you did a great job – of going back in and just really getting the intensity of it all, and just getting the looks on his faces and uh, on his face and the uh, the frustration and the determination, and as uh, somebody put it in this film, the narrowing of his scope to where he is eventually going to figure it out, or he's going to come close to die trying. And uh, so, so that was a little bit surprising to go back, and it honestly brought chills to the back of my neck and tears to my eyes to see him actually land it, even though I knew it was inevitable. I have to say though, the the bit, the most surprise that I wasn't watching this documentary Sam was seeing him admit to struggling with fame the fame that came from moments like that and then of course uh, the fame that uh, begat from the video game and its uh, popularity what was the most surprised you were in t- speaking with Tony and uh, really probing into his life uh, gosh that's a good question I I think that
1: what I learned about Tony is that there is a almost a responsibility that he feels to skateboarding. You know, he was lucky enough to have a dad from the World War II generation that took a great interest in his kids and decided to devote his life post-military to g- helping all of his kids in their pursuits. You know, his brother was a surfer, his sister is a singer, and Tony obviously was a skater. and uh, And some, you know... Tony did not get the emotional uh, acumen from his parents. They were not great communicators with each other. They didn't spend a lot of time together. And so Tony didn't have an emotional language with either of his parents. But what he saw his father do was give his time. and, And, you know, especially for probably men of a certain age from a certain generation, that is the way that men showed love. And i i think how that manifested in tony is that he had a whole bunch of work to do to become an emotionally present person but from the beginning he had this example of his father and, and so when you see tony creating a foundation and showing up at every skate event that he can and and being an ambassador globally for skateboarding i think that's that was the emotional language he learned is that uh, you know he had a he had this terrible time as a kid learning how to fit in and he found this community and he found a place to skate and he wanted other kids to be able to find that so long story short what i learned from tony is that his his love and his ambassadorship of skateboarding is not uh, just another arm of his marketing strategy it is really it comes from the heart and it's the way that he sh- shows love and i i think if if tony hadn't not come around or was not involved in skateboarding. It wouldn't be in the Olympics. It wouldn't have been in the X games. There wouldn't be a park in every underserved community throughout the United States. Um, Tony, Tony put the sport on his shoulders, uh, many times. And, and that to me, I guess what I found out is that was genuine and not just, um, not, and not just part of the, you know, the, the idea of, of extending his own career. He really, really cares about it.
0: In modern times, he really does strike you as just one of those people who handles his fame with the utmost grace. He almost has like a Johnny Cash way about him where it's impossible to dislike the guy. I I joked with him on the red carpet about uh, black Twitter and their hypothetical race war talking about the white people they'd have a hard time getting rid of. And he was on that list. Um, But uh, (laughs) he he has struggled with his own ego at times. I'm curious, what was the most difficult question that uh, that you had to ask him throughout the making of this film?
1: You know, that's funny. I I mean, I know I asked him a lot of questions about his personal life and about fame. But, you know, those questions are, it, it's sort of like asking a bird what if, what it's like to fly. Because <laughs> uh, if you can't fly, you can't really probably explain it to someone who, who can or vice mm-hmm. versa. And I think with Tony and with anyone else who becomes famous, until your private life is put on display, until everybody knows your name until you walk into uh you know uh, an arena in in detroit and you see that there's sixty thousand people waiting there to see you uh it's impossible to know what what the effect is of that and and i think tony does a great job of of explaining that you know until until fame hits you you have no idea how to handle it and then you're playing catch up so you know Those were hard questions, but I didn't expect, I didn't expect for someone to watch this film and go, oh, now I know what it feels like to be famous. But for me, the hardest questions were about his injuries. And I know he is extremely, not defensive, but he's extremely careful and wants to be very accurate about the reason he keeps skating and the level of risk that he is personally taking, regardless of how it looks from the outside. So, you know, to ask him about his injuries and to ask him about his identity and what happens when you can't do the things you used to do and who are you without skateboarding, those were hard questions for me to ask him.
0: I mean, you show an extremely scary head injury that he suffered at one point, I think near the end of filming. Obviously, just a couple weeks ago, he suffered a compound fracture of his femur with the x-rays online and it's as bad as it sounds and five days later he showed up on the red carpet at South by Southwest I've never been more physically impressed standing next to somebody because you could see deep down that he was in a lot of pain right there but Sam every time he took a picture every time he conducted an interview he passed his crutches off as to not show any sign of weakness that is just incredible to see a dude operate like that
1: yeah he definitely wants to handle these things on his own terms. And he wants to push the limits of what's possible. And, you know, knowing him on a personal level and getting texts and, and calls and things like that, uh, uh, he's definitely doing all the rehab plus a bunch more. And and there's no doubt in my mind that whatever the healing process of of getting your femur back to the best place it can be, he's going to take that more seriously and do it harder than anybody um because that's what that's what keeps him going I think I think this this broken femur isn't that different from a trick that he's trying to master he's going to become obsessed and he's going to find the limits and he's going to push up against them and uh he wouldn't be Tony Hawk if he if he didn't handle his broken bone the way he's handled the rest of his career
0: When he's already telling the New York Times that he's hopeful to get to a demo in Vegas, I think, in May or June. Like, I have no doubt that he's going to figure out some way, shape, or form to make that happen. And that speaks to something that you really probe at the end of this film, and that is uh, every single one of these guys, every single one of these legends from the 1980s and 1990s eventually reaches that point where they're not willing to push themselves because they know that it could lead to a dire outcome. But Tony Hawk doesn't seem to have that in him. How much do you worry about Tony and his desire to keep pushing in this sport that really takes no prisoners when it's all said and done?
1: Well, you know, there are nuances to that because every one of these skaters from his era, uh, the vertical skaters, Lance Mountain, Christian Desoy, Mike McGill, Steve Capillaro, Kevin Staub, they're all still skating. And they're all skating on an incredibly high level. I mean, I, I, go to the skate park with Mike McGill and he's doing the tricks that he's comfortable with for his level of where he is right now, both in his head risk wise and, and his body and how much time he's devoting to it. Uh, I don't think it's that different with Tony. I think that Tony um, just skates more than those guys Mm. and has a ramp that he owns that is the perfect size and transitions for him for, for his safety and and yes he broke his femur and and skating skateboarding is dangerous but i don't see him as that different than the rest of his peers mm-hmm. i i do know he turns up the heat and and pushes himself but he also uh, no one knows his body more than him and and knows the risks so i don't know i think all these guys um they are they're still taking those calculations. You know, Mike and Steve are both motocross racers and we go out to the track together and we ride. And, uh, those guys obviously more seriously, seriously than, than I do. And, but they've been professional athlete, athletes all their life and they're used to those calculations. So I think that it's, it's a hard for someone who doesn't do these kinds of sports to understand the nuance of that. But I will say that I don't think Tony's being overly, um, You know, he's not taking risks that uh, that are out that are outside of his skill set. I'll just say that.
0: I guess to your point, he broke his femur on a 540, which you specifically asked him in this film how many times he's done. He's like, I don't know, 10,000, 10,000 plus. So it is one of those moves that he is that comfortable with Uh, for you as somebody who uh, skateboarded in the past. I guess you just admitted that you still skateboard nowadays. What is your limit? Well, every time I slam from some
1: trick, then that trick sort of goes in the, uh, I used to be able to do it, uh, In (laughs) I guess. Uh, but you know, our, our great editor on this project is a guy named Greg Finton, and he's a skater as well. Um, and one of the great joys of making this film was we took, we would take breaks and go skate. Uh, and, and we actually met at the the Santa Monica skate park called the Cove and, uh, you know, I, I just seen him there as one of the, one of the older guys that, that I occasionally run into at the park. Um, but the great thing about skateboarding is that no matter what level you, you are currently at, the feeling is still amazing and to be able to drop in and carve and get speed and to push yourself at whatever level that day that you're trying to push yourself at, um, you know, it's still a great feeling. And, and so I can still go out and drop into a bowl and carve and grind and, and enjoy myself that way. But I'm also incredibly mindful of what the risks are because I don't have the luxury of laying myself up for six months, you know, uh, and very few of us do at this age. So, so it, yeah, it's, it's, in a way, I guess I'm experiencing the same thing that Tony is, and we all are. At what level, you know, my mother's 84, and going down the stairs for her is a risky proposition, <laughs> you know. So, uh, but she still goes down the stairs, and um, so I guess at every age there's there's a risk, and there's a calculation you do, and you decide what, what is tolerable
0: for you. It's a good way to think about it. All right, last couple of questions here, Sam. First off, a uh, couple weeks ago because I am uh, a student of the art of the interview. I asked you what makes for a good question because uh, you are a well-known interviewer who has uh, spoken with a bunch of high profile people. You said the key to a good question is listening because the best questions tend to be the follow-ups. Is there a follow-up that sticks out in your head from asking questions for this documentary that elicited your favorite response?
1: Oh, well, hard to remember specific questions um, because My style of interviewing is really more conversational. Mm -hmm. And and if you were to go through my interview transcripts, they don't seem like uh, interview questions. They seem more like a conversation. And, you know, one of my uh, frustrations is that I'm not as careful with my interviews. The reason my voice pops up in the films every now and then is that I don't coach the people I am talking to uh, about how to say it in a way that, it's a complete sentence, or the question is in the answer. Uh, and that can be frustrating for for editing. but um but I think that I look for visual cues. And when I can see someone light up and they you can see them start to sort of make calculations and and you can see the the movie camera turning in their head those are times when I really try to lean in and expand that into a larger conversation, because mm. I think we can all take cues. And we, we know when someone's fired up and we know when they're excited to talk about something. And, and uh, so I, I think I just try to stay present. It's, it's hard, but you try to stay present you try to push away all the distractions and really just be the best audience for somebody and help them in the best way you can to get to those memories. You know, we all have these memories that other people unlock for us. You know, like it, I'm sure you forget about an experience until someone tells a story. Oh, I was in Italy once, and then and then you remember. Oh, I was on a trip once, and that thing happened to me. And so, in a way, good interviewing is is also helping someone unlock those memories, and then and then giving them the space to to you know to describe those experiences.
0: Hmm. And last question: You are a very well known photographer. Uh, what's the key? to a good portrait photograph considering how many world-class ones you've taken in your life? I don't think there's, I mean, there's not really one key. Uh, To take a good
1: picture is probably extremely similar uh, to be a good interviewer. Um, There's just more technical aspects to it. You know, when you're interviewing, you're listening and you're paying attention and it's the same with photography. Uh, But, you also have to sort of have a visual acumen and, and a take that, that is both, you know, it, it, I, I suppose being a photographer is it's listening with your eyes in a way. And, but also having, um, having a thing that you want to say visually it, yeah, it's a big answer. Uh, but I, I feel like my skill as a photographer also came from um Trying to really see who the person was, and and making sure that I didn't put too much of my own uh, my own vision or or input into who they were, but to try to really uh, enhance who they were. And I, I suppose in those in those ways, uh, making a documentary is sort of just a, a big conceptual photograph of somebody, you know. And you get all the tools, you get music and sound and um, you get editing and uh but in a way what you're trying to do is say hey here's a person i think is worth knowing and i'm going to do my best to to create a picture of them that that gives someone else inspiration and 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 curiosity
0: into who that person's uh what their motivations are so it comes down to getting them comfortable through conversation and then probably also light, lighting too
1: i mean i've always felt like the first thing is to is to be open to the moment and not be so rigid in your technical approach or or in your ideas. and and, um, and yeah, just I, I, look, you, you can't there's no substitute for experience. I know it's a cliche, but there really isn't. And uh, you have to you have to fail a lot. And before you kind of figure out how to do things right and in that in that way it's not that much different from skateboarding. you know you gotta you gotta take a lot of bad pictures before you can make a good one.
0: Tony Hawk would tell you to just start skating If you want to get better at skateboarding I heard Ron Howard tell student filmmakers Just start filming And uh, the same thing goes for photographing as well He is Sam Jones, a renowned uh, photographer And filmmaker His most recent example of the latter Is the excellent new Tony Hawk documentary on HBO Titled Tony Hawk Until the Wheels Fall Off Check it out now, HBO Max Sam, thank you so much for the time today And thank you for this wonderful film Oh, thanks for having me I appreciate it